Hey, it's Rachel Martin. This is Up for Sunday. In the last decade, there have been a lot of public conversations about representation and misrepresentation in the movies. Change has been a long time coming, but we do see it right now as 2022 comes to a close. One of the biggest hits at the box office is the Marvel superhero film Wakanda Forever, which features an almost exclusively black cast. But these conversations about representation are hardly new. And my colleague, Aisha Harris, has been thinking a lot about this. Aisha is the co-host of the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. She decided to revisit three major films with enduring legacies and complicated histories. The result is Aisha's series, Screening Ourselves. We're going to play one of the episodes from the series. But first, I had some questions for Aisha about how she put this whole thing together. And she joins us now. Hey, Aisha. Hey, Rachel. So um, besides an excuse to go revisit all these classics and spend a lot of time (laughs) watching movies, why did you decide to make the series? What were you hoping to learn? Well, I realized that we were, you know, having a lot of conversations about representation in film and TV today. And there's been a lot of pushback from certain corners of the Internet and in the entertainment industry and in the media landscape against, you know, quote unquote, woke movies, woke talk around movies and TV. And I I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to show that while, yes, the way that people discuss how they are represented on screen has changed and shifted and maybe even been amplified, we have social media. We've, of course, had hashtags like Oscar So White to sort of um, bring these conversations to even wider mainstream attention. People have always been protesting and pushing back against representation on screen as long as movies and TV have existed. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to show how those debates played out and how they played out with films that we may not even think of as being controversial today because so much time has passed and they have these sort of enduring legacies as either considered classics or in the case of one of those films, cult classics, I I would argue. Um, So that was kind of the impetus for for wanting to create this series. Okay, so we're going to go deep on some of these, but just give me an overview. What are the films you picked? Well, the first one is a doozy. It's a little movie you may have heard of called The Godfather. Um, And and I dove into sort of how Italian-Americans, some Italian-Americans have had a very complicated legacy with that film. And the other two are The Color Purple and Basic Instinct. Hmm. So these are very different (laughs) movies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as you you went back, as you watched, as as you studied them, did you notice some commonalities? Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, and maybe this is obvious, but the reason all of these movies struck up such conversation when they came out for, you know, their respective um, representations in the case of The Godfather, Italian-Americans for The Color Purple, there's this divide between black women and black men. And Mm -hmm. then for Basic Instinct, it was the way it portrayed the LGBTQ community and women. Mm -hmm. And the commonality amongst them was that there's a history behind all of these films of, of having very gross and disturbing representation, whether it's the way the queer villain has been depicted throughout so much of film history, including movies like Psycho and Dress to Kill. And those were the sort of things that the activists and the protesters were against and bringing up. They were like, this 
is not necessarily progress forward. This might be reiterating some of those stereotypes. Hmm. It was all coming from this sort of lack of representation or this understanding of misrepresentation. And that's why people were so upset with each of these films. Because there were a lot of expectations. There were a lot of hopes that they would kind of break down these old tropes about misrepresentation, that they were going to get it 100% right. Exactly. It's a scarcity mindset, right? It's like we don't have too many other examples to point to. And this is what we have. You know, that's kind of the feeling that these movies kind of brought forth. Yeah. Okay, then let's start with the OG, (laughs) the Godfather. What do you think? This is the army where you shoot them a mile away? You got to get them close like this. But a bing, you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. (laughs) So, I mean, yes, this is one of the most celebrated movies of all time. But there was a controversy around the film. So give us the backstory. So basically, you know, when Southern Italians started coming to the U.S. in the the 19th century, they brought with them this not great stereotype of the mafia. And Americans seemed to perceive all Italians who were coming to the U.S. as somehow connected to criminal activity. And that bled into the way the media portrayed them and and the way movies portrayed them. Mm -hmm. Scarface, the 1932 version starring Paul Mooney, is a classic example of that that we get into in, in the episode. And it kind of helped create this idea that all Italian Americans knew someone in the mafia or were in the mafia. That was something that when The Godfather came out, kind of reiterated that in a way. But the fact that it was a movie that was, A, created by mostly Italian-Americans, and B, was taking it more seriously and had this very, like, it's beautifully made. And I think that elevation made it different from the previous iterations. But there were a lot of Italian-Americans who were like, just because it's beautiful, just because it's well-made, this is still about a mafia family. It's still perpetuating these stereotypes. And I think the people who I spoke with for this episode, the ones who were sort of against the film were very much saying it's not so much The Godfather as it is The Godfather legacy that has come after it. And the fact that after this movie comes out, then you get lots more representation of Italian-Americans in mafias. Uh, You have the films of Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas, Mean Streets. Like you have all of these films and it's... It's that perpetuating of a stereotype in a way that when people still think about Italian-Americans, often the first thing they think of is something like The Godfather. Yeah. That, that's the issue. And, and that's what is so nagging about that movie for yeah. some people. I mean, it launched a whole genre. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So moving to film number two, Basic Instinct. So <laughs> Basic Instinct. I guess we characterize this as as a dark erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. Uh, All I remember is the scene, Sharon Stone, um, there's an interrogation. You ever uh, engage in any sadomasochistic activity? Exactly what did you have in mind, Mr. Corelli? There's some missing underwear. I mean, I I, I was like in (laughs) high school. So I was like mildly traumatized (laughs) by this movie. Um, Does the controversy surrounding this have to do with the graphic sex or what was it? 
I think the reason why so many people were interested in this movie to begin with, like it was all over the culture of zeitgeist, TV shows, late night commentators are all talking about that scene of the the exposing of Sharon Stone's character um, in that very brief millisecond. Mm. But I mean, that's not really what the people who were protesting the film, and these were real protests that were happening by mostly LGBTQ activists and allies, Queer Nation, GLAAD, they were all protesting the way that the Sharon Stone character, who is openly bisexual, she is kind of part of a long tradition of the queer villain, the queer anti-hero. And this is coming at a time when it's, it's 1992, the AIDS crisis was at its peak. There's also a rise in violent hate crimes against LGBTQ people. And so when you have that happening in the background of this major movie that sort of perpetuates all these stereotypes about queer people being violent or being victims at the hands of violence. That was kind of what people were upset about. It wasn't just about the movie itself, but it was about how this was such a common trope in in Hollywood and in the media. And this was also affecting people's lives indirectly when it came to the violence that was being perpetuated against queer people. The last movie in the series is the 1985 film The Color Purple, which is this beautiful, incredibly important film based on the novel by Alice Walker. We're going to play the episode um, of your series where you dig into the response to this movie. So with that, let's hand it off to your team, Aisha. Here is Revisiting the Color Purple Wars from Pop Culture Happy Hour. A warning. This episode contains explicit language and discussion of sexual assault. Near the end of The Color Purple, the character of Celie, who's played by Whoopi Goldberg, finally has a triumphant conversation with her abusive husband during a big family meal. Now what's wrong with you? You a low-down, dirty dog. That's what's wrong. It's time for me to get away from you and into creation. And your dead body be just the welcome mat I need. After a lifetime of trauma, she's reached her breaking point with Mr., the man she was forced to marry as a teen, who's played by Danny Glover. She's discovered that her long-lost sister Nettie has been sending her many letters from Africa for years, but Mr. has kept them from her all this time. The revelation enrages and emboldens Celie to confront him about having isolated her from the one person who's ever loved her. But Nettie and my kids, they coming home soon. And when we all get together, we gonna sit around and whoop your ass. <laughs> Celie announces she's leaving him, and the tension gets so bad, she grabs a giant carving knife and lunges at him. Until you do right by me, everything you think about is gonna crumble. The other women on screen convince Celie to leave him be, and she walks towards a car to leave. Who you think you is? You can't curse nobody. Look at you. You're black, you're poor, you're ugly, you're a woman, you're nothing at all. Mr. keeps going. But Celie's unfazed. She gets in the car and exclaims proudly. I'm poor. Black. I may even be ugly. But dear God, I'm here. I'm here. When it was first released in 1985, The Color Purple was a cinematic outlier. For the first time, many Black women saw a movie that reflected their own experiences at home. Characters like Celie and the free-spirited Shook, who's played by Margaret Avery. Or Sophia, the self-assured force of nature, who's played by Oprah Winfrey. I love Hoppo. God knows I do. 
but I kill him dead for I let him beat me. They were women who had seen or experienced abuse firsthand and had pushed to seek happiness in spite of it all. But the color purple also reflected anxieties and debates about Black life and pop culture that had existed for generations and continued to reverberate in the present day. First, there was the fact that two white men, director Steven Spielberg and screenwriter Mano Meyes, were adapting Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel about Black womanhood. But even more contentious was the movie's subject matter. Nearly all of the Black men in the movie are depicted as cold-hearted, violent abusers. To some audiences, especially Black men, The Color Purple was the mainstream reinforcement of a deeply damaging and persistent perception. So it starts off with a man, a Black man, looking like a beast, acting like a beast, engendering the hatred of those in the audience for him. That's the incendiary religious leader, Louis Farrakhan. It was the 80s, and it was The Color Purple. Of course he was going to go in on this movie. But also weighing in with pointed criticism were people like academics, journalists, talk show hosts, and the NAACP. That didn't stop the movie from becoming a commercial and critical success. It even wound up with a whopping 11 Academy Award nominations. And in the years since, its reputation as a beloved classic has only grown, thanks to repeat cable broadcasts, a Broadway adaptation, hip-hop. Oh, my life I had to fight. Oh, it's my life I had to fight. It's also always had an enthusiastic and devoted fan base of Black women and queer people. But back in 1985, when mainstream Black images were far more limited than they are today, the color purple was polarizing. The 1970s was a relative boon for Black artists on screen. For the first time ever, major studio features were being directed by Black filmmakers, including Ozzie Davis, Sidney Poitier, and Gordon Parks. Movies with predominantly Black casts like Sounder and Lady Sings the Blues were being nominated for Academy Awards. Isaac Hayes became the first Black person to win the Best Original Song Oscar for the theme from Shaft. Who's the Black private dick that's a sex machine to all the cheeks? But many of the movies of this era fell under what was dubbed blaxploitation. Low-budget films often featuring Black characters as pimps, sex workers, or drug dealers in dangerous urban environments, like in the 1975 movie Dolomite. Dolomite is my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. The acting and dialogue usually left much to be desired. By the end of the 70s, blaxploitation had virtually dried up at the box office. And in the next decade, roles for Black performers would recede again. Black cast movies, particularly dramas, were still such a rare occurrence that a lot was riding on The Color Purple when it entered into production in 1985. The Color Purple. An American story for the whole world. It's about life. It's about love. It's about us. Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple, was released in 1982 to wide acclaim and won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, a first for a Black woman. It's an epistolary novel told from the point of view of Celie, a young teen growing up in the rural South in the early 1900s. Dear God, I'm 14 years old. I've always been a good girl. Maybe you can give me a sign. 
Let me know what's happening to me. The book itself has been controversial for its provocative themes around religion, faith, and sex. It's landed on plenty of banned book lists over the years. Here's Walker describing some of its themes for Democracy Now! on the book's 30th anniversary. Then she discovers that the god that she's writing to is deaf because he's basically the Christian god that has been imposed on Black people. Uh, and at that point, she, she, she starts writing to her sister. And eventually, she understands that divinity is all around us and that we are a part of it, and it's in nature. Walker writes Celie from a place of awe and curiosity, even as the world around her tries to suppress her joy. This was deep, ruminative subject matter that unflinchingly depicted domestic abuse, grief, sisterly bonds, and lesbian romance from a distinctly Black and feminist point of view. So like me, you might be wondering, why was Steven Spielberg, of all people, directing the movie adaptation? Here's a clip of an interview with Quincy Jones, who was a producer and wrote the score for The Color Purple. Steven had never done a film like that before. You know, no ILM or special effects, you know, close encounters of greatest ones that made Raiders, Jaws, E.T. Or directed African-American actors, right? Exactly. Yes. That's right. This is a a brand new trip for Steven. After years as Hollywood's resonant blockbuster whiz kid, The Color Purple would be Spielberg's first attempt at a realist drama. Despite his background as a white Jewish guy, he said he instantly connected with Walker's novel and her characters, as he explained during interviews at the time. I wanted, wanted it to, part of it to belong to me, and uh, because I just came to love all the characters in the novel, and I wanted to do it justice on the screen. I wanted to bring all those characters to life. I didn't want just to... Now, as I'm sure you can probably imagine, a lot of people were skeptical about a white director being appointed to tell such a sensitive story about Black pain. But you've also got to remember... This is the 80s. People were saying, why did they have a white man directing? This is Margaret Avery, who played singer Suge Avery in the movie. Number one, there were no Black directors at that time that the studios would give that power to. We didn't have our John Singletons or Spike Lee's and, and anybody else or all of our wonderful Black female directors. So Stephen was the only director with the clout that the studios would give it a go and the green light. Alice Walker served as a consultant for the movie. She also had misgivings. Her journals were published in a book compilation in 2022, and in excerpts from her notes about the production, she expressed disappointment with several creative choices, including inaccuracies in the scenes portraying Nettie living in Africa with Celie's children. But Black observers weren't the only wary ones. Once the movie was released, some movie critics and filmmakers suggested Spielberg was way out of his depth. Of the film's 11 Oscar nominations, Best Director was not one of them. The choice of director for The Color Purple may have been an obvious point of contention, but it was only a fraction of the debate. What really got people going was how The Color Purple showed and reflected Black life, and specifically the relationships between Black men and women. This message comes from NPR sponsor SmartWool. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories, your loved ones will be warm and cozy all season long. Find the perfect present and enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for SmartWool's mailing list. The Color Purple premiered in December 1985. At a special screening in L.A., a group known as the Coalition Against Black Exploitation staged a protest. 
In an interview with the LA Times, the president of the Hollywood Beverly Hills chapter of the NAACP called the movie, quote, very degrading for Black men. Both Glover and Spielberg defended their interpretation of the character at the time. Here they are talking about it in a 2003 featurette about the making of the movie. I never judged it. I mean, I think that's the worst thing you could do as an actor is begin to judge the character. You can all, all, all you can do as an actor, as an artist, is try to be and try to live inside the character. I never saw Mr. as a villain. I saw Mr. as a victim, a victim of his father, a victim of his grandfather, a victim of, of his era. But these kinds of defenses didn't do much to silence the movie's critics. You either love Color Purple or you hate Color Purple. Not long after The Color Purple went 0 for 11 at the Academy Awards, Tony Brown, a Black conservative journalist, dedicated an entire episode of his television talk show to a discussion of the movie. Now, how many of you in here like The Color Purple? How many of you do not like The Color Purple? Now, the panel on Tony Brown's journal was made up of four Black men on opposite sides of the debate. The anti-Color Purple critics were Kwasi Geiger, a member of the Coalition Against Black Exploitation, and Verna Jarrett, a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. The defenders of the movie were Eric Estes and film critic Armand White. This was before social media, before blogs, before Black Twitter— a time where most of these fierce debates had to take place live and in person, and the reactions could be visceral. The segment was dubbed Purple Rage. Well, when are we going to see a movie that is typical? When are Black men going to write it? This is the way Alice Walker wanted her book to be. Alice Walker wrote this book the way she wanted it to be. If you want a book about positive Black men, Black men got to get out and write a book. Make it a movie. Is it a book book about positive Black men? This is her good piece of fiction. Is it a book about positive Black men? Over the course of about 30 minutes, the conversation touched on nearly every major critique that had been made of the film throughout its run. Here's a brief rundown of those grievances. Argument one. The Color Purple further perpetuates harmful stereotypes to a global audience that'll believe that they are true of all Black people. Quasi Geiger. Film has always been used as propaganda tools by Hollywood and the powers that be. And for us to look in, at a film and say that it's just a, someone's story, we don't understand that the way that people view us around the world primarily comes from what they see on the screen. Argument two. Those same harmful stereotypes will perpetuate self-hate and shame in its Black viewers, particularly because of how frequently Seeley is referred to as ugly. Quasi Geiger again. Irregardless if that's what we do, we have to change that concept about ourselves. And the picture that does not give any context to it, our consequences for anybody act, anybody's actions in the film, is extremely damaging to our kids. Because remember this, women are the teachers of all men. The closest person that you have to you as a man is my mother. And any man in here would say the same thing. Argument three, that the color purple is historically inaccurate because abuse at the hands of Black men wasn't even an issue for Black women in the early 1900s. Here's Vernon Jarrett. I can tell you as a person here who knew some of the folk who survived that period, including my ex-slave grandmother, that Black men were not the rapist. You see more of that today, what urbanization has done to Black men. Now, I'm not sure where Vernon Jarrett was cherry-picking this faux statistic from, but at least one woman in the audience that day refuted his assertion. So there's that. And then there was one final argument, that the romantic moment between Celie and Suge is a threat to heterosexual Black couples and Black masculinity. 
This was brought up by a different member of the audience. What effect will purple have? Oh, God. (laughs) We're going to have sisters turn into other sisters for comfort, physically and mentally. We are going to... Yeah, and it's happening. It's happening. It is happening. So, yeah, there is a lot going on in that episode. In these arguments against the film, the critics were engaging with it from a strictly defensive mode. To Vernon Jarrett, Quasi Geiger, Tony Brown, and some of those audience members, this was neither entertainment nor true to their worldview. It was a political vehicle for furthering the degradation of Black people, and especially of Black men. We're talking about a time when Black men were in serious trouble. We were talk- this was the era of the endangered Black man, right? This is Washington Post columnist Cortland Malloy. Back when The Color Purple first came out, he wrote an article explaining why he had no desire to see the movie. While he complimented Alice Walker's writing style, he didn't like its focus on, quote, how screwed up Black men are. All kind of reasons for this. Homicide, leading killer of Black men, drug addiction, incarceration. And on top of that, you had the Reagan Revolution, which is a counter-revolution whose whole sole purpose was to cut out all social programs and give that money to the rich. And then out of the blue for Christmas, you get the same stereotypical character that Reagan was saying, that people were saying, no, these people aren't like that. That's not the way black people are. And then the movie comes out and there they are. As Cortland notes, it wasn't like The Color Purple was the sole medium for depicting these images. The fuse had been lit decades earlier. So let's take a brief detour to a couple decades before The Color Purple, the year 1965, and the roots of the vitriol. So in March 1965, the Negro family, the case for national action, was completed. It's better known now as the Moynihan Report, so named after the man who led the research, Assistant Secretary of Labor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. The mission behind it was to convince President Lyndon B. Johnson that it would take a lot more than just legislation to advance the prospects of Black Americans. Moynihan made the case that the effects of slavery and Jim Crow had put Black people at a severe disadvantage in every aspect of life employment, education, and especially the home. Now for him, all of this boiled down to the need to set a new national goal, the establishment of a stable Negro family structure. It'd be an understatement to call the Moynihan Report polarizing. It's had plenty of critics over the years, particularly for how it pathologizes Black culture, despite being relatively progressive for its era. But its themes would illuminate strains already apparent to Black people and it would reverberate throughout conversations about relationships between Black men and women in the decades to come. Within the arts and culture worlds, queer women characters and appeals for sisterly solidarity were emerging out of the literary and dramatic works of writers like Toni Morrison, Octavia Butler, and Entozaki Shange. Their works would infuriate some of the same Black male critics who would eventually attack the color purple. And when the 80s hit, Reaganomics and the crack epidemic did too. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the rate of Black people who were never employed in 1982 was 27%, compared to white and Hispanics at 13 and 15%. That same year, the incarceration rate for Black males was reported as more than six times that of white males. In January 1986, sandwiched between the release of The Color Purple and that episode of Tony Brown's journal, CBS News premiered a special called The Vanishing Family, Crisis in Black America. I didn't have a father. My father wasn't in the home. So, you know, it, it really, male figures were not substantially important in the family. It profiled several unwed teen parents from Newark, New Jersey, and was hosted by white journalist Bill Moyers. Today, 
black teenagers have the highest pregnancy rate in the industrial world. And in the black inner city, practically no teenage mother gets married. It was kind of like the Moynihan report for the Reagan era. Alarmist, depressing, but less interested in the effects of systemic racism than Daniel Patrick Moynihan had been in 1965. Darren Lyle is the father of Clorinda's baby. He is 18 and lives in central Newark. He dropped out of high school when he was 16. He has never held a steady job. All of these strains and anxieties seem to be coursing through that episode of Tony Brown's journal on the color purple. But while the color purple was viewed by some as only adding to these sordid depictions of Black life, to others it was a powerful, relatable piece of storytelling. Critic Armin White, who is gay, was one of the other panelists on Tony Brown's journal who praised the color purple. He didn't get much time to argue his points because the naysayers overwhelmingly dominated that conversation. But when I spoke with him all these years later, he had plenty to say. I think it's silly to argue that The Color Purple is not the wonderful film it is. It's not the great and insightful and bold film that it is just because it was made by a white man. Art is about empathy. If you're not able to understand what another person feels, you're depriving yourself of a better knowledge of your own feelings, frankly. Armand is a longtime critic for National Review and the author of Make Spielberg Great Again, The Spielberg Chronicles. He's a pretty controversial figure in his own right. His opinions on movies and pop culture have gotten him labeled as a contrarian and troll by peers and readers throughout his career. But he considers The Color Purple to be one of the greatest American movies ever made and a pinnacle of queer representation. He also sees it as a film that's doing more than just wallowing in Black pain. There's sunshine and there's rain throughout The Color Purple, so to speak. I think one of the best sequences in American movie history is the reading of the letters between Suge and Seeley. And when Suge meets first sees Seeley, she comes out of the rain, speaking of sunshine and rain, and she sees Seeley and she says, you so ugly. You so is ugly. <laughs> and the smile on, on Suge's face laughing at Seeley, is, that smile is then turns quite differently when she kisses Seeley. And it's Celie who smiles. I love you. You think I so ugly? No, I don't. You ugly. You sure is ugly. Mm, you still <laughs> ugly. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, Miss Celie. That was just a salt and sugar. Me being jealous of you and Albert. I think you're beautiful. Whoopi Goldberg will never have a better moment in her career than that. At one point during the segment back in 1986, Armin noted that the panel was sorely missing a woman's perspective. He wasn't wrong, though most of the audience members who chimed in during the conversation were women. And like Armand, some of them expressed their appreciation for the movie. I'm only 22 years old, but mm-hmm. I have gone through a lot. Mm-hmm. I thought the movie was great because it did take an unpleasant part and it brought it out mm-hmm. so that people can see. Mm-hmm. But that's to deal with roots and everything else. We don't want to see that again. No, but how are we going to know about it? How are we going to deal with it? How are those people out there going to deal with it unless they're exposed to it? Elsewhere, Black women were engaging with and discussing the movie on their own terms. Many of them also responded positively, as NPR's Lydia Kleiner reported during Oscar season. The intensity of disagreement between men and women about how to interpret the film led Howard University counselor Audrey Chapman to offer airing out sessions for students. Chapman says she was trying to avoid disastrous private confrontations by giving people a chance to say what was on their minds publicly. Chapman says male students took the film very personally. 
They over-identified with Mr. and Mr. seemed to be the main character that everyone talked about, even though there were other men in that movie. The women said that the movie wasn't about all black men. And in fact, if that's the way you saw it, then all of you have a very warped sense of who you are. Dorothy Gilliam, who had become the first black woman reporter at The Washington Post in 1961, wrote about embracing the color purple and viewing it as a useful opportunity to address sexism within the black community. We were just looking for something that was not, you know, either black exploitation. We were looking for a real drama about families. At the same time, she now feels conflicted about how she framed Black men's opposition to the movie. Looking back, I think I could really understand a little bit more about some of the protests by Black men about that the movie uh, showed Black men only in very negative ways. But I think I was so happy to see something about a Black family, about Black women, and that really, quote unquote, starred Black women, that I kind of didn't give Black men all the credit I should have given them for the fact that they were very upset. I think this gets at the heart of what author and critic Michelle Wallace observed in her 1979 book, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. This unresolved tension between race and gender that Black women must contend with regularly. Wallace argued that womanhood had been excluded from the Black radical movement of the 1960s. Here she is speaking with NPR's All Things Considered a couple months before her book was published. The problem of the Black woman was put aside um, in the interest of facing the problems of the Black man. You had to assume, you had to believe that black men had been more oppressed, more devastated by slavery and racism than black women. And you also had to believe that the key to um, rebuilding the black race was a strong black man. On the one hand, you want to acknowledge as a viewer this whole history of Hollywood depicting black men as buffoons and violent predators, going all the way back to the birth of a nation. So I can sympathize with Dorothy Gilliam's conundrum and change of heart all these years later. But there's an equally long history of denigrating stereotypes of Black women, too. And while domestic abuse within Black families was under-researched at the time, what limited data there was suggested it was an issue many Black women had to contend with. For example, some studies from the late 80s indicate that Black women were living in battered women's shelters at disproportionately higher rates than white women. With a color purple, the breath of Black women's pain and joy was finally, finally being rendered on screen through several distinct characters, all in one movie. This was huge. It shouldn't and doesn't take anything away from Black men's experiences to acknowledge and celebrate this. Or, as one woman interviewed about the controversies by the New York Times put it, Black women should not be sacrificed for Black men's pride. Let the film roll. From the beginning, Black women and queer people have praised and personally connected with the color purple. But Black conservative and straight male critics were primarily chastising the movie for existing in the first place, which inadvertently is also a dig at Alice Walker's novel. For other observers, though, it was more about how the movie was made. Through various accounts over the years, Alice Walker's feelings about the way Steven Spielberg translated her novel to the screen could probably be best categorized as lukewarm. 
Here she is talking about her initial reactions to the movie with Democracy Now! in 2012. In the beginning, I didn't like the film because it just felt so outlandish. It's very weird having a book of, of yours made into a film. Everything looks like a cartoon, uh, but I got used to it uh, when I saw it in a, in a theater with lots of people. There's something to the way she describes how the movie, quote, looks like a cartoon. Since its production, this sort of characterization of Spielberg's aesthetic has been invoked among the movie's critics and defenders alike. Even some of the cast questioned his creative choices at the time, particularly when it came to the relationship between Suge and Seeley. In Alice Walker's book, a character's queer sexual intimacy is made plain. In the movie, it's toned down and reduced to a tender scene where they kiss on the lips. Here's Margaret Avery. That was a part of Stephen making it, making the movie to make money. He said, if we show all of that, it's going to get stuck in the artsy films. It won't go commercial. And he did get a lot of backlash because of that, particularly from the gay population. Part of the reason Walker was said to have sold the film rights to The Color Purple was because she understood the power and reach of movies and how Black people had been maligned within the medium for decades. Seely, Suge, and Sophia, characters that were up to that point rare figures in the storytelling realm, these characters could reach a different and wider audience than her book ever could. To Armand White, at least, this is part of what makes the movie so effective as a story about queer women. The film doesn't try to make a case of her being a lesbian. It makes a case of her being a human being who loves. And uh, this, this may be part of the reason why the film is not recognized as a movie about a gay woman, but it is. But that's the conundrum when dealing with entertainment meant for the masses. The communities and cultures a movie depicts can only be appealed to so much without compromise and concessions. Many viewers felt that Spielberg fell short in bringing heft to certain scenes and characters. There were inappropriate comedic additions and levity added for commercial appeal and narrative flattening, like the famous scene where Sophia confronts Seeley for telling Harpo to beat her. Sophia's powerful assertion of her right to defend herself against her husband is undercut by crosscuts of Harpo awkwardly lying to Mister about how he got those bruises. You told Harpo to beat me. It was that mule, Paul. Old Joy. The, 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 old Joy the mule. I tell you, I was out there trying to plow that north field, and the mule just went crazy. He started kicking and bucking, hitting it right there. Bust my eye, bust my lip. Here's Dorothy Gilliam again. It's important for her to, us to also think about what Alice Walker, when she was writing the book, you know, what she had in mind. And I don't think the film quite captured that. It captured it a lot about the women, but not quite about the men. And when you read the novel, you see how there's much more in it that would support the fact that she also wanted to uh, show that, yeah, these men are doing some bad things, but they're also doing some good things. The movie was not true to the book. Cortland Malloy. To Alice Walker's credit, she did give you a sense of what being black was like in a way that Spielberg could not and did not. And in fact, to make it a mass-marketed proposition, you had to make it not so much that way. You had to make it have universal appeal. So you have these people acting out of context down there. The, the villain should have been, you know, white slavery people and sharecropping people and stuff like that. Yeah, so I'm not so sure I needed white racism to be the big bad in this movie. 
Also, Sophia has a life-altering experience when she's imprisoned for several years, then forced to live as an indentured servant for the mayor's wife after a racist encounter. Black men aren't the only antagonists in this movie. But these observations help illuminate how the color purple became an imperfect vessel for telling an unprecedented kind of Black story. It couldn't just be a movie that resonated deeply with certain audience members. Because of the era in which it was created and who was directing it, as well as who was voting on Academy Awards and who was most valued as a potential audience by studio execs, a significant number of white people were guaranteed to consume it as well. Naturally, that can breed ignorant responses from some white viewers and some apprehension on the part of Black viewers. I want to briefly jump back again to the episode of Tony Brown's Journal and a moment near the end where the host asks Armin White to comment on a white reviewer's response to The Color Purple. In that review, that person had referred to the, quote, no account black men in the movie. It bothers me about Parade Magazine, not about the movie. I can't legislate how stupid people read that film. I think it's a I mean, are all people stupid who don't see it from the standpoint, as you do, from a great movie made by a great director named Maybe Steven I Spielberg? Stupid, but I would say uninformed and naive and You're narrow. uninformed about that? your own history, No, brother. no, no. Wait a minute. I would, I would like to say something. I would like to say something, like brother, to say something you here. Are, you might as well be white. Wait okay. a minute. Wait a minute. It can be a little difficult to make out because of all the crosstalk. But at the very end of that clip, Vernon Jarrett jumped in to say that Armand White, quote, might as well be white. He basically called Armand an Uncle Tom. Well, that was stupid then. I think it's stupid now. I thought it was an attack on, on me as a black man. That uh, as a black man, I, I should not be defending a white artist. And as a black man, I should only be defending the work of a, of a black artist. But I, I don't think that way. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't then and, I don't, and don't now either. But that's where things were in 1986. Everything, too much, was writing on the color purple. Here's Margaret Avery again. You can understand how it was received. Most Black people hadn't even read the color purple. They didn't know that it was a Pulitzer surprise look and that it's fiction. And so we, I feel, have the burden of representing who we are as a people. And you cannot do that with a fictional story. You can only do the story. And so she and her co-stars and Steven Spielberg and everyone else involved with the production did the story. And they were praised for their performances and nominated for 11 Oscars. And then they went home completely empty-handed. It was supposed to be the night when the Hollywood establishment kissed and made up with Steven Spielberg. Tinseltown prognosticators envisioned an Oscar night colored purple, topped off with the Best Picture Award being accepted by Spielberg, the perfect Hollywood ending. But it was not to be, and the color purple was skunked, shut out by a big, lumbering epic out of Africa. Well, not completely empty-handed. The NAACP would eventually award the Color Purple Image Awards, and the Hollywood Beverly Hills chapter wrote a letter in protest to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decrying the movie's lack of wins at the Oscars. So to be clear, this was the same NAACP that had loudly spoken out against the Color Purple just a few months earlier. What gives? If the movie was so bad, why would they go out of their way to award it and get upset with the Academy for not doing the same? It'd be easy to label this move hypocrisy at its finest, disingenuous, genuflecting. But the comments of Willis Edwards, the president of the NAACP's Hollywood chapter, illuminates how not every reaction to the movie was so black and white. Around the time of the film's release, he told the LA Times, 
we're happy that a lot of actors who happen to be Black got to work and they did a fantastic job. They should all be nominated for awards. But for the Black male, the movie is very degrading. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Finding sales sluggish? Discover Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. With free 24-7 support and on-demand business courses. Go to shopify.com slash upfirst. Dear Celie, I know you think I'm dead, but I am not. I've been writing to you over the years, but Albert... For all its creative ambitions, The Color Purple was also a commercial endeavor meant for the mainstream. So let's take a look at some stats. The movie made a little under $100 million at the box office upon its original release. It performed so well, it got a theatrical re-release in 1987, just three months after its initial run ended. That didn't necessarily mean there was a sudden boom in casting for Black performers. Whoopi Goldberg would later suggest the protesters made it more difficult for Black stories to be told in Hollywood. The protest was so ridiculous, and unbeknownst to them, they cost Black actors in Hollywood a good five or six years' worth of work because, of course, nobody wanted to put together a Black cast, so they cost us dearly. They cost us a lot. Margaret Avery. I suffered with the backlash because... I didn't have another film to go to. I mean, the white films didn't allow me to work. I couldn't even get a manager after Color Purple. You know, they said, well, what can we do with you? (laughs) And I wanted to say, well, can you get me work? (laughs) You were nominated for an Oscar. like I didn't work for two years after Color Purple. And the thing that saved me financially was the college lecture circuit. I made more on the college lecture circuit than I did in Color Purple. It was quite clear. The Color Purple was groundbreaking, a turning point for Black women in film history. But had its critics just cut off the nose to spite the face? And raising hell over its depiction of Black life, had it actually held progress back for Black people in Hollywood? I'm sure it probably didn't help, but in the 1980s, studio executives would find any excuse to avoid hiring Black performers not named Eddie Murphy. They didn't even need an excuse, really. A movie like The Color Purple could be treated like a uh, Halley's Comet, an outlier striking at just the right moment every once in a while. Film critic Armand White feels that despite Spielberg's now-proven chops as a dramatic director, The Color Purple doesn't get its due from his peers and other cinematic institutions. You know, film societies, film museums, and they ought to be showing and teaching The Color Purple constantly because it is such an artistically rich movie. But they don't because it's a movie about Black people. And, and our film culture, our film culture gatekeepers don't like black joy. They only want movies where black people are brutalized and depressed and sad and victimized. They don't want movies about black people where, where their, their humanity is defined by their capacity for joy and love and desire. It's part of what's so beautiful in The Color Purple. Ironically, of course, the movie's harshest critics didn't see joy in the movie only brutality and depression. But I think enough time has passed now that the legacy of The Color Purple outshines the controversy it endured. It helps that we no longer have to wait a year or two or three to get a major movie starring and directed by Black people. The fall of 2022 features two blockbuster action dramas fronted by Black women whose characters confront grief while kicking butt. 
The Woman King, and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So we've got options now. Margaret Avery again. What I love about film now is that, and I see a lot, I see a lot of things of people of color that I don't want to watch and that I think take us back and really stupid. But hey, guess what? I can change the channel and go to something else. You couldn't do that 35 years ago. You were stuck watching that one thing. Online, the movie lives another life, affectionately repurposed and memed for internet conversations. That image of Celie, her arm outstretched as she curses Mr., that was tailor-made for Black Twitter. Everything you've done to me, already done to you. I think it also helps that the 2005 musical adaptation, which hews more closely to Alice Walker's novel and was written by three Black creators, that's kept Celie, Suge, and all the other memorable characters reliably in the cultural zeitgeist for nearly two decades now without as much of the hand-wringing as there had been in the 20 years prior. There have been two Tony-winning Broadway productions, multiple national tours, and other productions in other countries across the globe. A movie adaptation of it is forthcoming with a Black director and screenwriter at the helm. Alice Walker has had positive things to say about the stage musical. Here she is speaking with Democracy Now! in 2012. Yes, it became a really wonderful musical. Some of the things I had wanted more of in the film we were able to put into the musical. Which was? Development of the relationship between Celie and Suge, which is so precious and beautiful in the musical. Over the years, performers like Fantasia Barino and Lashans have gone on to play Celie on stage, and they've articulated the staying power of Walker's characters. This woman, this what she embodies, what she represents in our history of the struggle, the pain, the weight that has been put on this young girl, yet she's able to survive and not only be healed, but heal others, is a huge part of our lineage, a huge part of our history. And in the end, those who appreciated parts or all of Steven Spielberg's version of the book wound up overshadowing the critics if we're judging purely undedicated fan base. It just took some time and distance from the chaos and alarmism of the 80s for that largely Black female and queer fan base to become the consensus. Washington Post columnist Cortland Malloy now concedes he might have been a little too quick to dismiss how many Black women responded to the movie at the time. My mother is from a little town, a little farm in South Carolina. And so she knew, she knew how people are when, you know, there were men who were abusive. So her objection was that I was too, too willing to dismiss the fact of abuse as if it did not happen. I just was not ready to deal with it. What I learned from her is that there were women who were really, who were ready to deal with it, who wanted it out in the open. This is a big secret thing. That movie did things for people who had never seen images like that before and who knew that there were secrets that had never been revealed before. But even if the color purple has been accepted into the unofficial Black cultural canon, unfortunately, many of the same gendered schisms that plagued its initial release persist in the present day. I can't help but think about the high-profile Black women who have accused Black men of harming them in some way in the years since the color purple. For starters... Dee Barnes, Khalees, Rihanna, and recently, Megan Thee Stallion. 
who's accused rapper and former friend Tori Lanes of shooting her in the foot in 2020. Tori shot me. Stop trying to come on the internet acting like a black woman, a, a grown ass black woman, really got any reason to be lying on another grown ass black man when all the shit fucked up going on in the world right now. If you really in each of those cases, they faced public harassment and mockery and been accused of making their stories up for clout or money. Many of their loudest critics on the subject seem to be men. Their fiercest defenders tend to be women. And each time a new story like this pops up, it's kind of like the color purple debates all over again. Black women empathizing with another's painful experience, while many Black men dismiss it and shout it down. Except it's playing out over a real-life incident rather than a fictional drama, and largely over social media. Different side, same coin. Frankly, it's kind of depressing. And this isn't unique to Black culture. As we saw with Me Too, women across races and ethnicities face dismissal in response to domestic abuse. Margaret Avery again. When they were showing the film at these different fundraisers, you're talking about Argentina and France and, I mean, everywhere. It was like a wonderful experience for me. But those women who came out, you could see that they could relate to that film regarding the abusive relationship because they had tears in their eyes. Some of them were sobbing. And I feel blessed to be remembered with that film because I haven't done in my um, experience. I mean, there hasn't been another film that I've done that has touched me as well, as much as that character. Perhaps that's another reason The Color Purple endures, even if you're unaware of all the hot takes it initially inspired. It translates in any era. I first encountered the movie in bits and pieces on cable TV when I was a young adult, and eventually I read the book in either high school or college. And even then, in the early aughts, it felt to me like a work that was both of its time and way ahead of its time. The arguments that took place in those brightly lit TV studios, bustling college campuses, and everywhere in between, they tapped into where we were in the 80s and anticipated where we'd be now, nearly 40 years later. For better and perhaps for worse. The color purple is far from perfect, but I think the essence of Alice Walker's rich characters shine through whatever parts of the movie don't quite work. How can you discount what the storytelling has meant to so many people around the world after all these years? This episode is written by me, Aisha Harris, and produced by Mike Katzif and Verilyn Williams, with additional production support from Skylar Swenson. Bilal Qureshi is our editor. The interviews with Armand White and Cortland Malloy were recorded in 2018. Jacqueline Bobo's 1988 article, Black Women's Responses to the Color Purple, was a huge aid in my research. Thanks to Mary Glendening and Nicola Kahn for their research support, and to Stu Rushfield for engineering this episode. Some of the music you heard here is by Ramteen Arablui. Special thanks to Jessica Reedy, Lauren Gonzalez, Micah Ratner, Emily Bogle, Brendan Crump, and Linda Holmes. Our senior director is Beth Donovan, and our VP of programming is Anya Grunman. I'm Aisha Harris, and this has been Screening Ourselves, a special series from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hold up. 